And I invite you this morning to turn to 2 Corinthians in your pew Bibles. I forgot to look up the page number, but it's in the New Testament. I'm sure those around you, if, they, if you don't know your Bible, someone around you does know where it is, and they'd be happy to help you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as you turn to 2 Corinthians 1, we're starting a series in a letter where Paul opens his heart and life to the Corinthian church in a way that I think we're going to find throughout this series is very surprising. And I think his openness and vulnerability and obvious love, which produces those things, are what make this just one of the raddest books in the whole Bible. I I love 2 Corinthians. I'm super excited uh, to read it with you. And I'm excited to read it with you, not just because it's encouraging and heartwarming, but also because it's really challenging. Paul isn't this open just because gushing makes him feel better. No, Paul is open because the church, this congregation, the Corinthian congregation, has closed their hearts to him. And they've closed their hearts to some of their fellow members and to part of the broader church. Why have they done that? Pain. There's been hard decisions, hard conversations, hard visits. There's been lots of hurt, lots of anger. There's been lots of sin that hasn't been dealt with well by those who were involved, which has caused resentment and bitterness and distrust. Uh, We're going to look at all of that in our series But the result is a congregation, or really a series of congregations, that built walls around their hearts and lives to protect themselves, uh, not just from the pain of confession and reconciliation and forgiveness, but also just from the ordinary heartaches that come from living with other people. And what Paul and Timothy, who's kind of the co-author of this letter, recognize is that these walls, which were raised for self-protection— We're actually blocking the blessings of the gospel that really only arrive when we are open and vulnerable with one another. Love, forgiveness, reconciliation, generosity, deep fellowship really only show up in the most profound ways when we're vulnerable and open-hearted, when we're willing to receive one another in the name of Jesus. And so what Paul and Timothy are doing throughout this letter is inviting us into these blessings of the gospel that come to us through the mercies of openness and vulnerability. Uh, Just one more introductory point, though. Uh, I know this is getting long, but this is what the sermon's about this morning. Paul and Timothy don't encourage us to uh, open our hearts to one another because they're going to give us the secrets to never getting hurt again. No, in fact, as you'll see, they pretty much promise us that we're going to get hurt. Our text will use the word affliction. It's guaranteed because we're united to Jesus and Jesus is open-hearted with us, which means that he's open to being hurt and grieved by us, as the Bible tells us he can be. And as we see in Jesus' ministry and his relationships with sinners, sinners, he has suffering. We will have that. But you'll also hear them say in our passage this morning that as Christians, We're also guaranteed to share in Jesus' comfort, which, as we'll talk about, is a way that his mercy brings us help and hope and restoration and fellowship to us in the affliction. All of which is to say that Paul's invitation to vulnerability and reopening ourselves to each other 
is really an invitation to discover Jesus's presence in our lives when we're hurt and when we're comforted. It's an invitation to see that Jesus lives with us in ways that we will not begin to understand and experience outside of Jesus's presence in the pain of vulnerability and in the joy of comfort that Jesus' presence brings us in that vulnerability. All right, enough introduction. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 1 through 11. We're going to pray, and then we'll look at our three points. God's name as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, sharing in Christ's afflictions, and then finally sharing in Christ's comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted to us through the prayers of many. That's Father, reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray that he would write it on our hearts. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, we pray that you would indeed write it on our hearts by giving us ears to hear it, minds to understand it, and hearts to believe it. Father, may the meditation, may the words of my mouth as your preacher now be pleasing in your sight, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond and receive your word, may it all be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so this whole letter is that powerful. I love 2 Corinthians. Uh, The first thing I want to look at is the title for God that Paul uses in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. In the Bible, when we bless God, we are giving him praise for some character trait or attribute that he possesses. Uh, But it's not just praise. We're celebrating the fact that because of who he is, we can trust him. Blessing God in the Bible is celebrating some aspect of God that makes walking with him by faith both possible 
and even enjoyable and life-giving. Here, God is blessed because he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And we could spend six months on this verse, but we're not going to. Uh, So let me just unpack a little bit of what Paul says here. Uh, When the Bible says that God is our Father, it usually means one of three things, and sometimes it means all three of them at once, and I think that's the case here. It means that God is the source of life. That's one thing that God our Father means. Another thing it means is that he's involved in a loving family relationship with us in Jesus, that he's our Father who's in heaven because of our adoption into his family. And then the third thing it can mean is that he's the defender of that relationship. Importantly, I know it's, I know it's true that Father, when God is not called Father often in the Old Testament, but whenever he is called Father, it's because his relationship with his people is in danger. And God says, I am your Father, and I will defend us in our relationship. And so here, when God is called the Father of mercies, Paul... Uh, touches on one of the central ways that God gives and lives and defends his relationship to us, which is mercy. Now, there's two ways to think about mercy. One is to think about what it means, like what's the dictionary definition, but the other is to think about what it looks like in practice. How is it lived out? So in terms of a dictionary definition, mercy just means treating someone more kindly than they deserve. That's just what it means. But what does it look like when God actually practices and lives out mercy? Well, in the case of God our Father, it looks like making the choice to live with us even though we are constantly doing things that are offensive and hurtful. It means having a heart that is wide open to the work of always maintaining and growing a life of joy and peace with sinners like you and me. The Bible tells us that God's mercies are new every morning, which means that every day God renews his relationship with us so that every morning we get the chance to begin again and grow again and hear his word again and be loved freely again and invited to walk with him in peace through forgiveness and repentance and faith again. That's God's mercy. On the flip side, if God were not merciful, he would do what every child who has broken a rule is afraid what their parents will do. Close themselves off to them. If God were not merciful, he would fulfill the fear of every spouse who says something stupid. He would become bitter and cold. If God were not merciful... He would, as we sometimes do, because we are not infinite beings, get tired of our failures and faults, weary of us. In fact, I think we could say God would probably just throw us away and say, I don't have time for a toxic relationship with you. But because God is merciful, because he is the father of mercies who creates and defends and lives in a relationship of love and forgiveness with us, he chooses to give us new mercy every single day. 
And God just doesn't give us that mercy so that we can have our relationship with him renewed. And here's where Paul uh, takes this powerful attribute of God and starts to turn it towards the problems he and the church are having with each other and among themselves. He tells us God gives us this daily new mercy so that we, through prayer, prayerful reliance, I should say, on him, can renew our mercy to one another. That's the comfort that God blesses us with at the end of verse 4 and on into verse 5. He says, he's the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God's life of mercy with us bring us com- brings us comfort as it's poured into our lives and then as it overflows from our lives into each other's lives. That's Paul's point. That's what he's saying. Now, in order to understand how God gives us the comfort of his mercy, I think we need to think about the kinds of afflictions and sufferings that Paul has in mind here that Jesus brings us comfort in. So let's move on to our second point, which is sharing in Christ's afflictions. So in verse 5, Paul tells us that we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. Kids, abundantly means a lot. You know when your floor is covered with toys and you can't walk anywhere? Your floor is abundantly full of toys. Here, Paul says, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So when you're suffering... Whether that's fear, loneliness, depression, heartache, betrayal, misunderstanding, physical pain, whatever it is, the chances are high that Jesus has experienced it too because he has suffered in every way that we have yet without sin. Paul is saying here the problems that you have, Jesus has had. He understands. He's experienced them too. And we know that that's what Paul means because throughout the letter, he'll talk about the sufferings of Christ that he has abundantly shared in. We see one of them very powerfully in verses 8 and 9 of our passage. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. This is verse 9 now. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, we aren't sure exactly what event in Paul's life he's talking about here. Uh, It could refer maybe to his time in Ephesus where rioters tried to murder him and the other apostles. Though it could also refer to some kind of experience of disease. So in Philippians, Paul alludes to an illness that temporarily blinded him. Uh, It's probably not that event specifically because Philippi isn't in Asia, but it could have been some kind of severe illness. Paul will talk about a thorn in the flesh that could also, that could be um, some form of illness. Whatever it was, though, Paul and his fellow missionaries were so overwhelmed that they despaired of life itself, which most likely means they were afraid they were going to die. And just to say this, because I think it's important, uh, Jesus was also afraid to die. Not the moment of death, Not of the moment of death, though, where the human soul enters heaven. Uh, Jesus wasn't afraid that there wasn't a heaven. 
Just like you're not afraid there isn't a South Bend. You can't be afraid of someplace you know is, you've been there, right? Jesus was from heaven. He's not worried about that. But the pain before death, Jesus feared that. The suffering, the loss of his body, the leaving behind of people he loves, the knowledge that you're not going to be there to physically help them anymore. Those aspects of death, Jesus was clearly afraid of those. He wept drops of blood at them. He begged his father to care for his disciples as he prepared to physically depart from them. You see, one of the abundant afflictions that we share with Christ is the fear of the pain that comes with death. But not just that, not just that affliction. Paul will go on to talk about his own heartache at having people he loves cast him away because they've decided he's just too weak for them. You're just not good enough. He'll talk about being betrayed. Jesus knows all about these problems. Paul's going to talk about the affliction that comes from calling out the sin in other people's lives, which by itself is a hard and scary thing to do, especially if you value the relationship with the person, right? And he's going to talk about the affliction of having those people respond with anger and rejection and even running deeper into that sin. Jesus knows all about that affliction. Paul's going to talk about loneliness and physical pain, and the pain of reopening his own heart to those who deeply hurt him. These are all the shared afflictions of Jesus that you and I, I think, completely understand. We share abundantly in the afflictions and the sufferings of Christ. The afflictions of Christ that we abundantly share in are basically the afflictions that characterize relationships in a fallen world. And they're also then the reason why we build walls, aren't they? They're why we shut others out and close our hearts to those around us. Because affliction hurts. Pain hurts. I don't want it anymore. But to help us not do that, God gives us the comfort of his mercy. And so Paul says in verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So for each abundant heartache and wound, Jesus sends abundant mercy and comfort. How? How does Christ cause us to share abundantly in his relational mercies as we do in his relational afflictions? Now, I have two ways from this passage. There's plenty more in the letter. We're going to talk about all of them, I hope. Uh, but just two for this morning. The first way is found at the end of verse 9. Paul says there, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The comfort that Paul and his friends received as they faced the pains involved with death and obstacles that were just completely beyond them was that the God who raises the dead was with them. Uh, To rely on someone means that you can rest on their ability and willingness to help you. If someone can help you but you don't think will help you, you will not rely on them. It's ability and willingness. And what they learned is that Jesus is there and is helping. 
In the affliction and in the suffering, they learn that Jesus actively listens to them, that he's continually open to them, that he literally lives with them and walks beside them, that he loves them and is holding them. He was there in the fear. He was there in their failures. He was there in the heartache and in the valley of the shadow of death. Each moment, Jesus was mercifully there. And not just because he had to be, but because he chose to be and always chooses to be. They learn that Jesus chooses to live with them because he is merciful. And not just that, I don't think that they only learned uh, to rely on God for themselves. Here's what I mean. Uh, They thought they were going to die. When that happens, you're not only worried about you. You're concerned for your loved ones. You're concerned maybe about the gospel. Like who's going to care for them when I'm gone? Who's going to give them Jesus and the word when I'm gone? You see, certainly, and the rest of the letter bears this out, they learn that Jesus can be relied on for everyone else too. Because as the Bible says, God's mercies are for us and for our children and for all who are far off. Jesus' gospel of reconciliation is for us, it's for them, and he is powerfully present with it to renew his mercies to them and their relationship with him and with one another too. Which leads me to the second comfort that Jesus' mercy, uh, about Jesus' mercy that they received, and that's in verse 10. He said, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So in the New Testament, as far as I can tell, hope never means something you want to happen, but are afraid won't happen. Like we say, I hope it would finally be warm and stay that way, right? We want it to be warm, but we don't know when that will happen. We can't make it happen. That's not what hope means in the New Testament. In the New Testament, hope means a blessing that Jesus has promised us, but hasn't given to us yet. We know it's there. We're just waiting for Jesus to give it. And the most famous use of this is when Paul talks in Romans about our hope of the resurrection, right? It's a promise that we have from Jesus. It's certainly ours. It's just not ours yet, but it's going to be. Okay, so I said that to say this. When Paul says that they have set their hope on Jesus, that he will deliver them again, what I think he's talking about is his trust that God will deliver his relationship with the Corinthians like he delivered them from the jaws of death. And why I think that will become more clear as we move through the letter, but I'll just say this for right now. I think this because Paul will go on to talk about how he and the Corinthians need to be delivered from the pain of closed hearts and unforgiveness and stinginess and heartache. And like we talked about last Sunday at Pentecost, Paul has this hope, you see, for deliverance, for the deliverance of their relationship, because this kind of relational restoration is what the Holy Spirit came to empower. It's a promise of Jesus that hasn't been worked out perfectly in this relationship yet, but it will be. And Paul knows it will be because he's learned that God is with him and with them. He's reliable for not just himself, but for the whole church. And he's living with us. And his mercies are new every morning. 
And he's come to bring the comfort of Jesus in the, to the affliction of our broken lives. And those newly given mercies, Paul says, are given to us in such a way that we can then pour them out to one another. It's not just God with us, but God in us, overflowing in us to those seated around us. And I'm going to conclude with this reminder that verse 4 tells us that God is a father of mercies, and he's the God who comforts us with his mercy so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The supernatural mercy that God uses to open his heart to us daily as he calls us to repentance and as he gives us his forgiveness and as he draws uh, near to repair and strengthen our relationships, <coughs> excuse me, that's all poured out on us in such a way, great amounts that we can then pour it into one another in his name. So let's pray that God will use this book to help us learn to do that. <coughs> excuse me, and let's pray that like Paul, we would learn to see Jesus in our afflictions and in our comfort so that we can rely on Jesus for ourselves and for the church, set our hope on him, and strive to give the comfort of Jesus' presence to one another every day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the abundant comfort of your daily renewed mercies in Christ. Please <coughs> help us to recognize them more clearly so that we can grow in reliance on you and set our hope more fully on Jesus. And please help us to take the mercies you poured out on us in Jesus and by faith pour them into one another in your name so that our hearts would be open to each other and we would know more experientially the power of your gospel blessings that you have given to us in Jesus. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.